a lesson to understand some of those songs. There's a, just a ton of uh, allusions to the scripture in that. Uh, so, yeah, hopefully if you are new here, uh, you could follow along. And if not, you know, come ask me or Ronnie and, and uh, we can make some of that make sense to you, hopefully. Um, I do want to announce just a couple of things uh, aside from just, yeah, welcoming all you guys this morning. Uh, today we have the second of three uh, women's lunch seminars that we're doing, and so that'll immediately follow service today. Uh, and as with last week, if you are here today and didn't sign up to that uh, but would like to, to come, we would welcome you to do so, and we'll make sure we have plenty of food. So if you're not signed up, we did order some extra, but just come let me or Caitlin know uh, that you're staying, and that way we make sure there's enough for everybody. But yeah, we'd love to have you there. Uh, we've kind of said it's five bucks per person to just offset the cost of the meal, um, and then free for college students. Uh, but again, as with anything, if that's going to stand in your way of being here, we'll eat the five bucks. We just like you to be here. So, um, and then the other thing I'll just kind of announce. Um, with not much detail today, but just so you guys know what's coming. So uh, if you uh, haven't been a part of our church very long, you might not know. So we run small groups kind of all through the school year, usually like September through May. And so we've got women's groups, men's groups, co-ed groups, and uh, we typically take a break over the summer. Uh, one, to just give everybody a a night of their week back for a period of time. Uh, I think we find that when the fall rolls around, we're all much more excited to get back to that than if it's just this uh, infinite small group. Uh, it also gives us a chance each fall to look at our church, and you know, it's always changed a lot over the course of the year, both in size and who's there. And so it gives us a chance to figure out, okay, what do we really need here? How many groups of each type? It gives us a chance to, uh, you know. Um, raise up new leaders and give people that didn't have a chance to have that experience last year a chance to do that this year and just develop our ministry leaders. Um, and so, yeah, we'll stop those. Um, if you're a part of them, you're all probably already talking about that in mid to late May. Uh, and then over the summer, we do try to offer some things because, again, there's people that have come in within the last two months and they're just starting to try to get involved, may have joined a small group, and then their small group ends like four weeks later. Um, and so we do have a couple of things going on over the summer, especially for those of you that, that uh, yeah, are still trying to make connections, those of you who know a little subset of our, our church but would love to get to know some other people, and just those of you that know you really need that, right? You need that in your week, a time to connect, a time to share from your life, a time to, yeah, read the scripture and, and talk about important things. So um, the two things that we've got planned consistently every week this summer are, uh, there's going to be a, both will be co-ed. Uh, one is going to be, uh, you know, more of our like traditional small group style group, uh, and Kurt Doty and Elizabeth Million are going to lead that. Um, yeah, feel like we scored getting both of them to agree to that. I don't know how we did, but so you know that one's going to be a lot of fun. And then second is um, Isaac and Natalie actually approached me. Yeah, <laughs> man. Sorry, Kurt and Elizabeth. There's a... Uh, 
Isaac and Natalie approached me a while back about wanting to uh, host in their new home now that it's ready for, for people and not covered in dust and things from construction. Uh, they wanted to host a more traditional, actual scriptural study, so as opposed to, um, yeah, something that's designed to be really relational and storytelling that that they want to go through some content and actually study a book of the Bible. And so they're going to host that. I think Matt Clark might help facilitate that some. There's a, uh, I know Carla's planning to be a part of that group. Um, but they live, uh, yeah, here in Plano and are going to host that. So that is going to start uh, likewise in June and run through the course of the summer. So just so you guys know, we'll start doing some preliminary signups to just get a feel for how many people want to be a part of those things and make sure we've got enough space and are prepared for that. Uh, and we'll have some other things going over the summer as well, but those will be kind of our two consistent groups. So, yeah, you know who to ask if you want to be a part of that or have any questions. Um, okay, if you will, uh, I'd like to just say a prayer uh, before I jump into this, and, uh, and then I've got some thoughts to share this morning. Uh, Lord, thank you for bringing us here. I just thank you for your activity in our life, both that that we see and and recognize and that that we are just so unaware of uh, how you're working beneath the surface, uh, how you're working in ways that, yeah, we're not even equipped to, to recognize yet. Uh, but we give you the glory for that. We just uh, humbly thank you for caring enough about us to be near us and to care about our good and to be willing to pursue that at great cost to yourself. Um, I just pray that, yeah, you'd build up your body now through your word um, and that uh, you'd work internally on each of us, just in our hearts and minds at the level that, uh, that we can't touch, but you can. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Caitlin uh, started a series of sermons last week uh, about remembering. And the word remember uh, shows up a lot in our Bibles, uh, along with its antonym, forget. Uh, there was something a little that felt a little pre pretentious about using the word antonym, but I did it for you teachers, so uh, you're welcome. Um, but we see uh, people, uh, for example, asking God to do both of those things, begging him to remember and to forget. At times they're calling out saying, God, don't forget about me. Remember me. Remember the things that you promised my forefathers that you would do, right? Remember uh, <clears throat> the covenant that you made with us. I see, see me in my suffering and remember me, right? They call out to him likewise against the people who have mistreated them. We've, we see the Israelites saying things like, remember what they've done. Remember the way they mistreated us. Remember the violence they had. Remember the way they blasphemed your name. Don't forget to carry out your judgment on them. Don't forget justice. Right? Of course, when it comes to their own sin, there's a little bit of a different tune being sung. It's begging God. God, don't remember the sins of my youth. I was an idiot. You know, forget that. Just forget about it, right? Please forget the way we've rebelled. And the scripture uses this same remember language uh, as God talks uh, about his people, as the scripture talks about God's faithfulness. You know, when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, God said, I hear the groanings of the Israelites who are enslaved, and I remember my covenant with them. In other words, I haven't forgotten. I haven't forgotten what I promised. 
I haven't forgotten uh, about my people. I haven't stopped caring. I haven't gone back on my word. So buckle up, because it's almost time for me to follow through, right? Unfortunately, in spite of all their own cries for God to remember, we see this kind of depressing cycle in the scripture of God's people not doing that very well themselves. This cycle of God doing something uh, and then them forgetting it and their forgetfulness being followed by rebellion only to be kind of redeemed and reinstated by the Lord and to follow this cycle again. God performs mighty deeds, and yet before long, they seem to have forgotten what he's capable of and instead let things like fear determine their behavior. God miraculously provides for their needs, and yet before long, they're grumbling and questioning whether or not God's going to take care of them or maybe they were better off enslaved in Egypt. God puts on display for the entire world that he is, in fact, the one true God, and there is none like him, despite whatever Pharaoh wants to believe about himself. And yet, once again, before long, they've built a golden calf to worship instead. And if I didn't see this same cycle happen in my own heart and life, uh, it would be really easy to be judgmental. Uh, but I have, and so I try to maintain some level of patience and humility as I read about their failures and instead just allow myself to be in awe of the faithfulness and mercy of God that our sin puts on display, right? If you read the book of Deuteronomy, one of the things that you'll notice right off the bat as Moses begins speaking is that he's looking backward, right? And so uh, as Deuteronomy, be Deuteronomy begins, if you're not familiar with kind of the, the narrative arc of the Israelite people, I, I won't explain all of it now, but you know, God leads them on this exodus out of slavery, you know, with this great promise that he's made to their forefather Abraham and Sarah to make them a nation, a great nation that he would use to bless all people, that he would give them a land of their own, a land that the scripture says is flowing with milk and honey, you know, this, this vision of a place of abundance that's going to have everything that they need, right? And, and so he led them out, you know, into the desert. He leads them to the cusp of going in and taking this land. And they say, oh, well, we should do our due diligence, right? Like, let's send some spies in. Just make sure, you know, it's a good land. It's going to work out. And they come back, you know, trembling in fear. You know, these people are, are way too powerful for us. You know, they look at us and they see a bunch of grasshoppers. And so the people, you know, tremble in fear and they rebel against God's command, right? And so God, you know, only spares their lives because Moses begs for them. And instead he just says, that's okay, but this generation's not going to get to receive this blessing. Like they are not going to get to be a part of seeing this all come to pass. And so they instead, they wander for 40 years until that entire generation passes away. And now once again with their children and a select few faithful ones from the previous generation, they stand at the cusp of this major move forward. And no doubt, like the generation before, they looked ahead and had to be intimidated by the task that the Lord had given and Moses' answer for that was always to look back. 
essentially to say, oh, oh, you're afraid. Okay, let's take a time out then and let's, let's walk back through what's happened so far. You want to know what it takes to please the Lord in this situation? Okay, well then let's look back. Let's look at what he's already revealed to you about what kind of God you're dealing with. And I think there's this profound lesson for us in that. And so in this series and even now, I want to take a little time to develop what that was for them by looking at what Moses said here in in Deuteronomy 4 and then draw some parallels for us as well. In these first three chapters, he, he recounts why it's them and not their parents standing here today, accomplishing this culmination of God's covenant with their forefathers. He basically says, your parents let fear reign. They let fear and self-concern drive their decisions. And because of that, none of them get to receive this blessing. And now we've waited 40 years and a new generation has been raised up. And he starts out and he says, hear now, O Israel, the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. He basically says, listen, guys, listen closely so we don't do this all over again. And so he dives into this speech that's full of remember wins and you saw when this took place. And I'm going to read a couple section, uh, chunks of it uh, so you can turn there if you want or just listen. So this is Deuteronomy 4. Again, hear now to these decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them that you can live and you can go in and take possession of this land. Don't add to what I command you, and don't subtract from it. But keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. You saw with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Peor. But all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you're entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear all about these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and laws you were to follow in the land that you were crossing the Jordan to possess. He goes into this section about idolatry being forbidden. And then he jumps in in 32. He says, Ask now about the former days. 
long before your time. From the day God created man on the earth, ask from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation? By testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by a great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides Him, there is no other. From heaven, He made you hear His voice to discipline you. On earth, He showed you His great fire, and you heard His words from out of the fire. Because He loved your forefathers and chose their descendants after them, He brought you out of Egypt by His presence and His great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you into their land to give it to you for your inheritance as it is today. Acknowledge and take heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Keep this decree and command which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. So he takes this careful account of God's activity in their lives. In this previous generation, although he doesn't confine it to that, he also says, remember, remember the days of old, long before you showed up, when I got this whole thing going. Don't forget that, those parts of the story either. And as we move through this chapter, and I didn't read all of chapter 4, but as you move through, there's kind of three primary things that Moses focuses on. Three graces. They're, they're, they're three events in their history. They're all three movements forward in God's revelation of himself to his people. And as I said, they are all three profound acts of grace. They're unmerited gifts that, the God, is, that God has given Freely given, not because of Israel and anything they did to earn them, but because of God's love for his children and because that's what God is like. He is one who blesses. Uh, in this first eight verses, the, the, the first grace, I guess you could say, that he focuses on is the grace of Torah, the, the grace that, that the law was in itself, this law given to the people on Mount Sinai. He says, what other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? Yahweh's character, his closeness, as well as this law that he gave, the commandments that he, he handed these people to uh, you know, set out what their relationship to him would look like and, and what the relationship to each other should look like, the things that, that, that established them with this new national identity. Those things emphatically set Israel apart from the surrounding people groups. And I think we look at the law, we read parts of it through our 21st century eyes, and we're like, man, that's pretty rough. Like, I don't... That can't possibly express God's ideal. And I don't think it does in some areas. 
But the thing that, um, that you see as you do a little bit of history is that even these commandments that don't express God's full ideal were this massive step forward in the ancient world in terms of valuing human life, in terms of valuing justice, and a host of other things. And Moses, you know, living in that time, in that place, saw so much clearly than, than we do that that was the case. And so he recognizes it as, as the massive gift that it was. And later we see, uh, you know, others, I think of King David in, in the Psalms, gushing about the law and these commandments, which feels a little bit foreign to me. I don't gush over legislation very often. Uh, certainly commandments that are made on my life that feel like impingements on my freedom uh, aren't things that I just fawn over and write poems about very often. Um, but they did. And so I'm pretty sure there's something there that they saw that I often miss. Mostly it's interesting to hear that perspective uh, from guys like Moses and David uh, because, you know, growing up I tended to read a lot more Paul than either of those guys. Um, and what I would find is these passages where Paul is, seems to more be like bemoaning the law and his inability to follow it, or not so much his inability to follow it, but its inability to save him. Um, we see even when he followed it to the T, he found himself in opposition to God. And so it feels, as you read some of those passages, without some of this backdrop of like, oh, the law was this bad thing, this negative thing this frail uh, thing that couldn't really accomplish the purposes of God. But I think that's a misunderstanding. Moses and David didn't bemoan it. They praised it. So, as we seek to understand, why is that? Why did they praise these laws and decrees from Yahweh the way they did? I want to share a prayer. Uh, it's a Sumerian prayer. And... Uh, it, I'm going to mispronounce this horribly, but it is from the library of Ashurbanipal in Nineveh, who was a king of the Neo-Assyrian Empire in the 600s BC, okay? 600 years before Christ, we have this Sumerian prayer. It's a prayer of penitence to unknown gods and goddesses. And I'm just going to read pieces of it because it's kind of long. But this person says, may the wrath of the heart of my God be pacified. May the God who is unknown to me be pacified. May the goddess who is unknown to me be pacified. May the known and unknown God be pacified. May the known and unknown goddess be pacified. The sin which I have committed, I know not. The deed which I have committed, I know not. So it kind of starts out this like, to whom it may concern. I'm not sure who it is out there that's mad or what I've done to make them mad. But here I am asking for forgiveness. Pure food I have not eaten, clear water I have not drunk. An offense against my God I have unwittingly committed. A transgression against my goddess I have unwittingly done. O Lord, my sins are many, great are my iniquities. 
My God, my sins are many. Great are my iniquities. The sin which I have committed, I know not. The iniquity which I have done, I know not. The offense which I have committed, I know not. The transgression I have done, I know not. The Lord in the anger of his heart hath looked upon me. The God in the wrath of his heart hath visited me. The goddess hath become angry with me and hath grievously stricken me. The known or unknown God hath straightened me. The known or unknown goddess hath brought affliction on me. I sought for help, but no one taketh my hand. I wept, but no one came to my side. I'm afflicted, I'm overcome, I cannot look up. Unto my merciful God I turn, I make supplication. I kiss the feet of my goddess and crawl before her. How long, my God, how long, my goddess, until thy face be turned toward me? How long, known and unknown God, until the anger of thy heart be pacified? How long, known and unknown goddess, until thy unfriendly heart be pacified? You get the sense of, of what we're dealing with. I've, I'm struck by how closely some of that language mirrors some of our scripture, right? These, these sincere calls out of the heart of like, I know there's something wrong and I need someone else to help, right? And yet, they're doing so with no direction, no knowledge. The NIVAC, uh, NIV application commentary writer on, on Deuteronomy actually includes this prayer, and then he says this. He says, having rescued his people from Egypt, Yahweh could have left them to figure out on their own what an appropriate response to his gracious redemption might be. This is the plight of all who lack access to the mind and will of God. Whereas the Israelites knew the will of their God because he had revealed it to them. The way other peoples related to their gods was always experimental. The best they could do was guess what should please their gods, but even then they would never know whether their assessment was right, whether their conclusions measured up to the standard of righteousness, and whether adherence won the goodwill of the gods. And, and, and again, referencing this prayer, he says, this pathetic piece provides a remarkable window into the psyche of the ancients. This person is sure of three things. The gods are angry with him. His sin has caused this anger. And he must do something about the sin to placate the gods. But his ignorance is also threefold. He does not know which god is angry. He does not know what the crime is that provoked the divine fury. And he does not know what it will take to placate the wrath of the gods. Can you imagine us being in that place all the time? Some of you probably can relate. You had parents like this. You know, my dad had a parent like this. You walk around on eggshells all the time because you don't know how to please them, and what can set them off at any, any moment feels totally arbitrary. That is the state of the ancients when they think about the divine. They saw the gods as totally capricious. It was arbitrary. We didn't, you know, they were self-interested beings, and so... They were going to pursue their good. And if you didn't meet that, and they haven't told you how to please them, right? Like One, because they don't actually exist. They're made up. But, you know, you don't know how to please them. And so anytime something bad happens, it's you're left like in the same position this Sumerian was. So in that sense, the law God gave was a great grace, right? 
not a noose around their necks dragging them down. Moses tells us God is near his people. He hears our prayers. He tells us how to please them, and he shows us the way to live. And those realities have a, a huge bearing on how we move forward, both back then in Moses' time and here and now. It was this massive gift. He moves on verses 9 through 31 and talks about the grace that the covenant is. And that's not a word that we use a lot outside of wedding ceremonies, but in biblical times, covenant was a word used to refer to a number of different types of agreements. And when we talk about God's covenant with his people, what we're talking about is an agreement, an establishment of a relationship and the terms of that relationship. What does each party agree to and what happens when one of them is unfaithful, right? Again, the Nivak writer talking about Deuteronomy 4 says, covenant is both the topic of conversation of this passage, so he's talking about covenant, and the form it takes on. So this passage itself is built like other covenants in the ancient world with one major difference. Typically, a covenant like this would happen between a powerful overlord and a people that he has just conquered. And thus, the covenant would serve his interests. Yahweh's covenant, however, was not initiated by a king who had just conquered this people, but who had just rescued them. And this relationship, from start to finish, serves their interests and well-being, not his own. Again, in that world, radically and emphatically different from how anyone else was viewing and understanding the divine, however they saw the divine. So Moses speaks out to this generation of Israelites and says, why should we trust God to accomplish this great task he's given us? Why should we give him our exclusive devotion? Because he has initiated an established relationship with you, and he will remain faithful to it. And then you move past verse 32, and that last section I read, this third grace that Moses looks back on is the grace of salvation. Which for us, I think this is typically the only thing we use the word grace to talk about is this other word, salvation. In fact, I think, you know, for many Christians, even some of us along the way, the, the summation of what being a Christian means is that one day beyond the blue, like, instead of eternal torture, I'm going to get to go be in paradise, right? Like, there's this salvation, it's somewhere off in the distance when all this thing is wrapped up. But you got to remember that when Moses talks about salvation, this is not just some future glory. This was a present reality. They had already experienced salvation. God saved them from an oppressive existence in another land where they had no freedom, no power, and no national identity. He saved them. He gave them standing before him and before the world in very physical, tangible terms. He set them free. And Moses pieces his way through what God has done and then summarizes the theological takeaway. He says, think back. Think back across what you've seen. Has anyone done anything like what you've seen God do for you? These signs and wonders and great deeds. No? Can't think of anything? 
Well, then know this day that the God of Israel is in a class all his own. You heard him speak from heaven, and you saw his strength displayed on earth. So take heart this day that Yahweh is Lord of both and can certainly accomplish this task he's put before you today. And then he wraps up this awareness of what God has done in saving you should inspire you to live uh, in line with his will because the will of this gracious God has your best interests in mind. And so I hope as I, I transition from focusing on ancient Israelites to you and I, I hope you see our similar situation. And like Caitlin did last week, I want to invite you over the course of these next couple of months to remember. To, I want to invite you into a practice of remembrance. To look back on what God did in an unknown number of years ago when creation came about at his very word. To look back on what he did in this faithful relationship over generations and generations in our scripture to witness afresh his mighty deeds and outstretched arm. We're going to read some of those accounts. To witness afresh his compassion and care for his people. We're going to read about that as well. To remember that he's always working, even when we can't see it, when it's below the surface. He's always working to bring about his good plans for the world. And to look back on your own life and remember. To do the work to remember. Think about the scripture saying the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That, that faith itself, belief is work, right? And I think remembrance is part of that work. <laughs> so that when I'm in these moments of spiritual lethargy, when I'm out in the spiritual wilderness, so to speak, when I've lost clarity about life and purpose and the Lord's will, that I have these anchors, these cornerstones, certainly from the scripture, but also from my own life. You know, Caitlin shared that passage of Joshua after they crossed the Jordan on dry ground and he had the men carry 12 stones across and then he built them up, right? And he left this marker there and he says, why? So that we won't forget that the Lord is powerful, right? We won't forget that the Lord is powerful. We, we can look back and say, oh, I'm, I have doubt in this situation. Well, guess what? He's already shown me he can handle it. And guess what? He's already shown me that he cares enough about me to handle it. And so as, as he doesn't meet my time requirements, <laughs> you know, remember that the national deadline for child life doesn't mean anything. So look back at the moments of grace. Sorry, that was a reference to Caitlin's sermon. So if you weren't here last week and you're really confused, just... You can go listen to that. Uh, to look back at the moments of grace when we've received unmerited gifts from the Lord. Whether those were the, the common graces that all people receive, whether they acknowledge God or not, or it was a really specific grace given to me by God, personal to me. To look back at the times that you witnessed His faithfulness to look back at the things that he protected you from, the moments where you're like, that could have been really bad. By the grace of God, it wasn't. To look back at the times the Holy Spirit prompted you to act or speak, and it didn't make sense until you obeyed. 
to look back at the times that you came to faith and started a new life, the times God opened a door for you that you thought was closed, the times that He used you to bring someone else to faith in spite of you being very aware that you are neither equipped or qualified to be His co-worker in the kingdom. Amen? To look back at the undeserved gifts He's given and the prayers that He's answered. What God performed all those years ago were incredible in their own right, but they were also leading to a climax. They led to this climax of his revelation in Jesus, where he told us who he is, where he told us what he's doing in the world, where he told us where all this is headed. And likewise, I think his goodness towards us, maybe in a slightly different way, his goodness towards us too, is pointing to a climax. They point to a victory that has already been won and not yet fully realized. They point to a God who continues in his faithfulness towards his people, who continues to offer us good gifts, gifts like knowing who it is we're trying to please and how to do so, how to make it right when we don't, Gifts like the opportunity to be in relationship with him, the gift of his presence and closeness, and the gift of salvation itself, both here and now, the gift that God wants to deliver us from the things that enslave us and stifle us as people, the things that at best cause us to waste our lives on things that are unworthy of them, and at worst destroy us altogether, that he, he offers salvation from those things. And that salvation is available today. And he offers us the gift of salvation still far off, right? A rescue from death itself that comes only from binding ourselves to the source of life himself. So in the coming weeks, yeah, we're going to look back at some of those accounts, many of them from the Old Testament, and remind ourselves of what God did there of what we learn from those moments that can serve as cornerstones to our spiritual foundation and anchors for our souls. And I'm also going to ask some of you to share, as part of our worship times, a story from your life where God's power or love or faithfulness was put on display for you and that serves as an anchor for you in times of confusion, right? In times of suffering, I certainly have some of those myself. And I mention that now because, you know, in terms of this specific uh, sermon series, I just have no idea of knowing your stories, right? I have no idea of knowing the things God's done for you and, uh, and for your loved ones. And so, yeah, I would just ask and encourage you that if you have a story that gives glory to God and that could build up the faith of the church here you know, let me know. Shoot me a text or give me a call. I know even just the mention of that is making some of you guys anxious. Uh, and you'd rather die than get up and talk in front of a <laughs> group of people. Uh, but the thing I've learned about Jesus again and again is that it's not a whole lot about what I'd rather do and a whole lot more about how I can bless others to his glory. So I hope you'll take advantage of that opportunity. Uh, the worship team is going to come on up now and uh, play a song while we uh, serve communion. Uh, if you uh, call your